book of Hebrews. I appreciate, uh, again, the opportunity to be able to stand and preach. I, I never take that lightly. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to come all this way and preach for you folks. I definitely don't take that lightly. Um, I wouldn't fly myself all the way in to preach. And so it's very kind of you to do that for me. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate the Hickams, my good friends from over in Amarillo coming. Um, they're just like family to me, and so I'm always happy to be able to see them and uh, fellowship a little bit. Uh, one of the hard things about preaching around is you meet people and you get close to them, and then you don't see them forever. It's just, you know, a couple times a year here and there. So it's always a blessing to get together, and uh, thank the Lord one of these days it's, it's not going to be like that anymore. We'll be able to fellowship together for all eternity. And uh, praise the Lord together and worship and uh, enjoy uh, the fellowship of the saints. So I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, I I do just want to, in the preliminary remarks to the message, I mentioned to the men, I felt like the church body as a whole should know this. Um, Last night when Brother Smoker was introduced, the pastor said he didn't know if he should announce he was from North Carolina or Australia. This is the voice of North Carolina. And uh, so if, if you're confused this morning, this is what a North Carolinian sounds like. And uh, so I'm not sure where he's from, but it's not where I'm from. <laughs> uh, but it's been, a, it's been a privilege to meet him. He's actually just right down the road from me, uh, just a few hours. Uh, he's down in Statesville. Um, you just jump on, on 40, and, and when you get to Asheville, go north, and I, I'm about... 30 minutes to the northwest of Asheville, so we're not far away from each other at all. And uh, actually, once upon a time, I saw him in a service once and didn't even know it, and a friend of mine, uh, Brother Andrew Sluter, he pastors in Asheville, they sang, his family sang at uh, Brother Sluter's church. And so that's been a little while, I guess probably about 2020 or so is when that may have happened, when everybody was shutting down and we were, we're all looking for somewhere to go to church. <laughs> oh, so praise the Lord. It's good to get to know him a little better this week. All right, Hebrews chapter number two. I just want to take some time this morning to lift up and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. You can never go wrong when you do that. Hebrews chapter number 2 and verse number 9, the Bible says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will bless the message this morning. Use it to the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask. We pray, Father, that uh, it would lead to comfort for the body of believers that are here present this morning. Lord, I I pray that as we think on the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, we'll follow this admonition that you gave us to consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And that we'll take a moment this morning, just think about the Lord and how good that you've been to us. And Lord, the the offering of Jesus Christ and what he did by coming and being born of a virgin woman, being raised up, being perfect in all points, and dying on the cross for our sins, being buried and raising again the third day according to the Scriptures. Lord, we thank you for it. 
Lord, I pray that you'll bless the message this morning and the time of fellowship to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take a moment and observe some things in Hebrews 1 and 2 about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, of course, uh, like all the other books of the Bible, it is an amazing book as it uh, really depicts some great things about Jesus Christ. Uh, and really the overarching theme of this book is that Christ is better. He's better than the better than the angels. He's a better prophet. He's a better sacrifice. He's mediated a better covenant. He's a better priest with a better priesthood. And so the theme of the book of the Hebrews is just simply this, that Christ is better. And so this morning the title of the message is this, Jesus Christ made a little lower than the angels, but much better. And what we can say about Christ this morning as we examine the book of Hebrews, specifically chapters 1 and 2, I want to notice these passages that link him to angelic beings. Notice chapter 1, verse number 7, the Bible says, And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So we have the angels here who are ministering spirits, but verse number 8, uh, something different is said to the Son. Unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the first thing that we can say that Christ is better than the angels is this. We see he's better because of his deity, because he is very God. And it's amazing today that there are those who are amongst the ranks of Bible believers or call themselves Bible believers, I assure you they're not, but they minimize and detract and even deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a shame and a disgrace. You cannot read a King James Bible and walk away from it thinking anything less than Jesus Christ is God. And so we see his deity declared in verse number 8, as the Bible tells us, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And by the way, you know who's saying thy throne, O God, is forever? God the Father's saying that. The Godhead is literally testifying that Jesus Christ is God. That he is God manifest in the flesh. Can you imagine that every every bit of the of the godhood of the godhead all of all of the greatness the expanse of whatever that encompasses is manifest in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that in him dwells the fullness of the godhead bodily that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can say this morning, He is better than the angels because He is deity, because He is very God. And there are many cults out there who would seek to detract from that. You better be settled on it this morning that Jesus is God. And he testified himself to be God in John chapter number 8. Those Jews knew exactly what he was saying when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. He was, he, he was is, and always will be God. So this morning we see his deity in that he has made 
uh, he is better than the angels. But then we also see this. We see verse number 13 of chapter number 1, his dominion. The questions asked like this, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Notice chapter 2, verse number 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Verse number 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. So when we take all of these passages and we we put them together concerning uh, the angels versus the Lord Jesus Christ, we see this, that the question is asked of of the angels, to which of them said, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? And the answer is none of the angels. You know who he says that to? The Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse number 5, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, wherever we speak. Who is the world to come put under subjection to? The Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, not only him, but those believers who faithfully serve him and live for him and suffer for him, according to the scriptures. The Bible tells us that if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. Revelation chapter number 5, we are made kings and priests unto our God. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, the Bible tells us that we shall judge angels. So according to the scriptures here, we see that the world to come is not put in subjection to the angels. As a matter of fact, when, when we get to the world to come, when we're in that thousand year millennial reign, guess what we're doing? We're judging the angels. Not only are they not in, is the world not in subjection to them, but they are under us as far as our judgment that we pass upon them. That's for the believer. So Christ is made a little lower than the angels according to Hebrews 2, but he's much better in that his dominion, he will reign and he will rule for a thousand glorious years and this world will be in subject to him. And he will deliver it unto the Father, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But we see this in comparing Christ and the angels. Not only his dominion is better, but according to chapter number 2, his declaration is better. Notice verse number 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward... Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? So in other words, if the words that are spoken by angels are steadfast, how much more the words that are spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ? How shall we escape uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first was spoken by the Lord? And so when we read this, we consider the Lord Jesus Christ as his word is better. And by the way, you know what we have in front of us? Despite what many are trying to teach today, here's the teaching that's becoming common today. They'll say things like this, that 
uh, this isn't the word of God, Jesus is the word of God. Well, yeah, Jesus is the word of God. A King James Bible says he is seven times. But you are, you are literally denying the scriptures themselves as well as 2,000 years of church history to say that this book is not the word of God. This book is the words of God. And it, we have, by the way, a more sure word of prophecy that's been given to us. But not only is he much better because of his declaration, but this is why I want to spend the majority of my time this morning. He's much better than the angels because of his descent. Because, according to the scripture, as we read in verse number 9, our opening text, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now this is going to seem like an understatement when I first say it, say it possibly, uh, but it, it's not in the sense that the scriptures themselves is echoing what I'm getting ready to say to you. Jesus Christ could have come in a different form. He didn't have to come as a human being. He actually could have came as an angelic being, but he didn't. The scripture tells us, Hebrews 2 and verse number 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels. He could have came as an angel. He could have been manifested that way. But it goes on to say, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He could have came as an angelic being. He could have been manifested as a ministering spirit, as a flame of fire. But instead, he came in a body of flesh just like yours and just like mine. And that is so doctrinally profound that John says in 1 John chapter 4, if you deny it, you are denying it through the spirit of Antichrist that he came in the flesh. That's why it's so interesting, Brother Smoker mentioned uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 last night. Uh, Great is the mystery of godliness, God is manifest in the flesh. It's so interesting that that's one of the verses that they want to change. That they want to detract from this concept that God was manifest in the flesh. And all your new translations, He appeared in a body. Well, big deal. I I appeared in a body when I showed up this morning. But it's not that he appeared in a body. It's that God was manifest in the flesh. And not not is is it just sloppy, according to what Brother Smoker said last night, how they would reject that vast testimony in favor of two manuscripts. Not only is that just sloppy... But according to 1 John chapter 4, that's a demonic spirit of Antichrist that would detract from the concept that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. His descent is very important to us as believers. 
Because he could have came in, in, in any form he wanted to. But he came in flesh like yours and mine. He lives for 33 years, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He overcomes sin in the flesh. And then he goes to Calvary, not because of his sin or any transgression he ever did, because he did no sin. But he went there because of my sin and your sin and paid the price there at Calvary for those sins. And it was there that the Bible tells us He became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. This descent of Christ, this humiliation, this submission that He took upon Himself is so important to us because of what He accomplished through it. Hebrews tells us a few of the things in chapter 2 that were accomplished through the submission of Christ to the Father, through His own humiliation as He became made a little lower than the angels. Verse number 9 tells us this, that He was made a little lower than the angels because He should taste death for every man. So Christ was made a little lower than the angels so that He could taste death for us. That's a profound thought that as Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, the one in whom was the fullness of the Godhead bodily, went to Calvary and laid his life down because no man could take his life from him. And he tasted death for you and I. And by the way, the scripture makes it clear, it's very plain here, that he tasted death for every man. Some of you may be more or less familiar with the teaching of, of John Calvin. It was uh, later collated at the Synod of Dort into an acrostic called Tulip. And that was done by, uh, by his followers, Theodore Beza really being the ringleader of that. But that being um, it, this acrostic of Tulip representing five points that undergirded his Calvinistic teaching. And the U in the tulip stands for unconditional election. There was an individual and his followers who came to the Synod of Dort stood against this concept of unconditional election. Uh, they stood against all of it, but uh, unconditional election, limited atonement. And basically what they did is they just flipped the whole tulip idea on its head. And so while Theodore Beza and those who were following the doctrines of Calvin were teaching unconditional election, they were saying, no, we believe the Bible teaches conditional election. And that our election is conditioned upon our belief. And when they're teaching irresistible grace, they're teaching that the grace of God can be resisted. It's appeared unto all men. And that man has the free will to resist the grace of God. And then limited atonement. When they are saying that the, the atonement is limited only to the elect who are arbitrarily chosen by God, this group over here is saying, no, we believe in what they called a universal or a general atonement. Or in essence, that Christ died for all. And that His atonement is available to all. And when we read Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, the Bible says... That he tasted death, notice for whom? For every man. 
His atonement is universal in scope in that whosoever will may partake of it. One of the great examples of this, if you would go back to the book of Ruth chapter number 4, in Ruth chapter number 4 we have Boaz who is redeeming unto himself all that was Elimelech's and Malon's and Chilion's. He's paying the price so that he can redeem all of these things and by default he gets Ruth who was the wife of Malon. And so he's paying the price to redeem these things. But the Bible doesn't say that he just redeemed what applied to Malon. He redeemed what what was Elimelech's, what was Malon's, and what was Chilion's. So you know what that means? That means that there's a woman walking around somewhere in Moab that's been paid for. She was paid for the same price that was given for Ruth was given for her and she's walking around down there in Moab and has no concept of what's going on under Boaz as he's being the kinsman redeemer you know what the world's doing today in response to the atonement of Christ they're just walking around out there and uh, they're not partaking in it because they reject it and they decide they want to stay in Moab And so they never take part in it. But that's not the kinsman redeemer's fault. He paid the price. He paid the price for whosoever will. And so we see that Christ in His descent, in His humiliation, according to the Scripture, tasted death for every man. We see that according to verse number 14, the Scripture tells us that it was to destroy Him who had the power of death. Verse number 14 says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through the power, or that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh so that he could taste death for every man, and that through partaking in death, he could destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. You know, many times, um, and not that this is wrong, but when we take, when we take stories from the Old Testament, um, the first application many of us make is to us. Because that's what, who, who we're thinking about the most, right? We're thinking about ourselves. And uh, not that that's wrong in any way, but uh, you, you know, I've heard more messages probably than, than I could count on both hands on the topic of facing your giants and how that God can help you to overcome your giants. Now that's not a bad message because we have giants in our life just like David faced Goliath. And that God can help us overcome our giants. There's no doubt about that. And I don't think there's anything wrong at all with a message presenting with that practical application. But I'll tell you what I'm looking for primarily when I go through the Old Testament. What I'm looking for in Scripture is this. Where can I find Christ? Where is He at? 
And I'll tell you this, I noticed a young preacher, he was preaching at a youth meeting that a friend of mine was holding. And you know, this guy, young guy, I don't even know if he understood like the magnitude of the things that he was saying while he was preaching as he was making some different application between Christ and David later upon his return to Israel and whatnot and the return of Christ. And I began to think about that. And I thought, wow, well, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see something very similar. We have... We have this man, David, who's sent by the father and he goes to his brother and he's rejected of his brothers and he ends up, according to the scripture, and I'll for sake of time cut a lot of this out, but you, you know the story, I hope you do. Uh, David goes to battle against Goliath and when he goes down to battle, the Bible tells us he's carrying these five smooth stones. And as a young preacher, you know, we'd sit around and we were always coming up with theories and ideas and uh, trying to figure out what, what's the five smooth stones for. And, you know, one of the most common answers was, you know, one for Goliath. And if the four brothers show up, we're going to take them out too. We got one for each. But as I was thinking and trying to make application, how do we see Christ in this picture? David goes down into the valley of Elah. And he takes five smooth stones. And according to the scripture, he smites the giant, he wounds the head of the giant, and then takes his own sword and chops his head off and puts an end to the giant. You know what we see there? That Jesus Christ went down into the, the valley of death and five bleeding wounds he bore received on Calvary. And according to Hebrews chapter number 2, he, through death, He took on death Himself that He might destroy Him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. And Jesus Christ, through five bleeding wounds, conquered death. He did that because of His descent, because He was made a little lower than the angels and took on flesh like you and I. But I want you to notice this, verse 17. Verse 17, the Bible says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He became made a, a, a little lower than the angels. So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, and we'll see this in verse number 18 as well. He experienced the things that you and I experience. We already mentioned it through temptation. He, he was tempted in all points. Like as we are yet without sin. He experienced temptation. He experienced Heartache and heartbreak and betrayal. He experienced the elements, the, the cold winds, the hot days. And according to the scripture, he was made like unto his brethren that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. You know what we find here though at the end of the chapter is verse number 18. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to succor them that are tempted. He became like you and I 
so that he could succor those who are tempted. He became like you and I. That word succor means to help or to assist. He became like you and I so that he could experience temptation. He could suffer being tempted so that he could help or assist, succor those who are being tempted. I mentioned the quote last night, and it's laid heavy on my heart for probably about a month and a half, two months now, when Spurgeon said, because we are tempted without ceasing, we should pray without ceasing. And every day, there's a new battle. There's a new confrontation. There's another temptation. Every day, it's waiting for us. Yes, through the work of the devil, but also the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's in us. In our flesh, the Scripture says, dwelleth no good thing. And every day when we face those temptations, the Bible tells us, by the way, James chapter number 1, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Count it a joy when that happens. Now that's complete opposite of what, what we think we should be doing. We think, man, when, when we experience temptations, and James later goes on in chapter 1 to deal with temptation and what it is, how that every man is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed. We're thinking, oh, this is, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to us. James says, count it a joy. And according to the writer of Hebrews, when we're in that position of temptation, that is when we are able to feel the succoring comfort, the assistance, the help of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, who with every temptation has made a way of escape that ye might be able to bear it. I, like the preacher mentioned last night, I thought I was the only one who, who felt like that. When I was younger, I, I thought, man, when, when I get into my teens, there are things I'm not going to deal with anymore. And I'm not going to have the same temptations that I have right now. I mean, I, I didn't even know what being a teenager was. That's like, that's like temptation every hour. And then I thought when I became a teen, I was like, man, you know, just when, when I'm a little bit older, I can shed some of, of these, these childish temptations. And yeah, you get rid of some of them, but then there's new ones. There's new things that, that you never would have even imagined that would come around. And, you know, I, I wised up, uh, even, though, even though I'm young, I, I wised up probably in my early to mid-twenties that I guess this is probably what it's going to be like the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm just going to face temptation. And it's going to come in different forms and different ways, and I'm just going to have to be ready for it. You know, that's, uh, that can be a, a, a thought that brings a lot of distress. You know, you think about that and you're thinking, man, I, I just can't wait to get out of this body, get to heaven, 
Don't worry about this garbage anymore. Don't worry about uh, being faced with these temptations, these, these random thoughts that just pop in your head. And, uh, uh, you know, immediately you just think, Lord, I, I plead the blood over this. Get this out of my head. I don't want to be thinking about stuff like this. Go to pray, and, and you kneel down to pray, and, and you're trying to pray and be spiritual, trying to read the Bible and be spiritual, and just boom, something comes in your head, and you're thinking, where did that come from? How'd that get there? You weren't even, weren't even thinking that direction. And it's like it just fell out of the sky right into your head. It's all right, child of God. Amen. Because our Lord suffered being tempted. That He could come to the aid of us when we're tempted. And He created a way of escape that we might be able to bear those temptations. And he demonstrated, by the way, what that way of escape was. My old pastor used to say it like this. He said in his mind, it's almost like he spent that 40 days in the wilderness as a carpenter just framing up doors, just building door frames out there. Because when the devil came and tempted him, he said, it is written. You want to know if, if that analogy my pastor had in his heart and mind of what, of what the Lord, and again, it was just an analogy, but of what the Lord was doing for us in a spiritual sense in the wilderness, he's framing up those door frames. You know what's over the door frame? It is written. If you want to flee from temptation, you know what you do? You find a door that says it is written, and you walk through the door. And God's given you a whole book full of them. And so when you're tempted, our Lord provided a way of escape through His book, through His Word. And we can look to Him, we can consider Him as our example of one who was tempted, but overcame temptation. In flesh, by the way, just like yours and mine. He experienced it, He overcame it, and He showed us the pattern, the example that we can follow after Him. Father, I pray this morning that You'll take this simple thought and bury it in the minds of each believer here. Lord, it's been on my heart here lately as I think about all the temptations that surround me in my life, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. But Father, I thank You that You sent the Lord Jesus Christ And He experienced these things and He overcame these things and He left behind an example. But Father, I I thank You that even when I fall and I fail, that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Lord, I, I pray, Father, though, that we won't just look at grace as a means to catch us when we fall, but a ladder to help us overcome. Overcome these things that we would face as the world, the flesh, and the devil would seek to introduce temptation each day in our hearts and minds. Father, help us to turn away, to, as the songwriter said, yield not to temptation, but that we would trust in Christ and His help, His assistance, His example in order to overcome and flee from it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.